Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems. In this podcast, we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges, from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blaxland, and today I'm joined by Stuart MacDonald, Professor of Law at Swansea University. Stuart's research interests lie in criminal law and counter-terrorism, particularly cyber-terrorism and terrorists' use of the internet. Stuart, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's it's very nice to have you, and uh, it's a great topic. Looking forward to discussing it. Before we get into the substance, can I just start off by asking you to introduce your area of research. Just tell us a little bit about it, sort of, I don't know, give you 60 seconds. (laughs) I've been researching terrorist use of the internet for the past 10 years. So we we began this programme of research back in about 2011. And initially, we were interested in looking at the possibility of terrorists launching cyber attacks. And as the years went by, online propaganda and radicalization became an increasing policy concern. And so our focus shifted into looking more at how terrorists use social media platforms for the purposes of spreading propaganda and recruitment. And in recent years, I've been looking increasingly at questions of response and how we should look to try and regulate the online space to try and tackle this problem of online propaganda and radicalization. Yeah, and it's fair to say it's a hot topic, so plenty for us to discuss. But if we just go back to the beginning, I mean, why this area initially? When did you choose to focus on it and yeah, and why? Well, it was about 10 years ago and there was the opportunity to apply to a scheme within the university called Bridging the Gaps. And I was quite interested at that time to begin to explore interdisciplinary work. So I I was introduced to Lee Jarvis from the politics department and Thomas Chen from the computer science department. And the three of us got together and we tried to find some shared common interest that would give us a chance to do some interdisciplinary work. Lee and I were both interested in terrorism and Tom, coming from more of an engineering and computer science background, was quite interested in the cyber dimension. And so we agreed to to look at cyber terrorism. And that was quite timely because it coincided with the UK launching a national cybersecurity strategy. So we thought that was a good topic. And we, we put a proposal together. And fortunately, we were successful. And the money that we received from Bridging the Gaps, we used to host a couple of workshops. And the workshops were geared towards putting together an edited volume. So that was a really good opportunity to begin to explore these issues around cyber terrorism. You've mentioned this whole interdisciplinary thing. Now that's kind of a, it's a buzzword. Uh, It goes down very well in academic circles, doesn't it? But it does matter and it means something quite important. But can you maybe just expand uh, and tell us more about why it's so important that people from very different disciplines sometimes come together and collaborate on projects like this? Well, I'd been working for five or six years in academia by that point. Um, post-PhD. And as I'm from a law background, my work had very much focused on legal responses to terrorism. Mm. And I'd reached a point where I felt that I needed to understand terrorism itself more in order to be able to write more meaningfully about legal responses to terrorism. So I really wanted to understand the phenomenon that I was trying to, to write about. And So that was a a really key catalyst, I think, for me reaching out to other disciplines where they study the the phenomenon uh, in an empirical sense more than an academic lawyer might. Is is it a case of, because I do a little bit of interdisciplinary work, but um, I probably should do more. And is it a case of the whole being sort of greater than the sum of its parts? You know, if you bring people in from different disciplines, uh, they offer... What is it? Is it fresh perspectives? Is it different ways of looking at things that you wouldn't be familiar with that, that change your work and make your work better? Is that fair to say? I think there's, there's different possible routes to, to studying an issue. And there's a lot of value in studying something from the perspective of a single discipline. There's a lot of excellent legal academic work that has been very influential. But there's also a lot of value in working with people from other disciplines because it does open your eyes to different perspectives, to different ways of approaching problems. And so in this instance, actually working with a computer scientist and with someone from political science, 
the types of responses that we began to discuss to the threat of cyber terrorism were much broader and more varied than you might look at if you were just focusing purely on legal responses. So, for example, trying to incentivize businesses to improve their cybersecurity. That's an issue where law may have a role to play, but it's not solely a legal question. It's something where uh, you might have very valuable insights from other disciplines like management or business or computer science. It's um, it's obviously a very healthy thing to do. I, I find it very difficult standing in someone else's academic shoes sometimes and looking at their methodology and the kind of literature that they read, for example. it's um, It can be a challenge. We had lots of conversations in the early days where we really began to understand the extent of the differences in approach, even simple things like how you might go, in, go to put a research proposal together. The approach that Lee and I would take as social scientists was quite different to the one that Tom would take um, as a computer scientist. So there was quite a bit of really getting to know each other's discipline just to overcome those initial kind of obstacles, I guess. But also one thing that we used to have as a joke between the three of us was Tom could never really understand our obsession with definitions, particularly my obsession with definitions as a one from a legal background. And of course, he said definitions are important. You have to be able to specify exactly what it is you're studying. But the definitional debates maybe excited me a lot more than they do people from other disciplines. I think it's just quite good to get a window onto the uh, the opportunities, but also sometimes the perils of, uh, of of working with people from lots of different disciplines. Obviously, you work on you work on cyber terrorism. At the heart of all of this is is the internet, isn't it? It's the online world. And again, before we just get into discussing the, the real meat of your research, uh, is it worth just talking about this and talking about the internet as a thing? Because you know, I think the, the internet has proliferated in, in my lifetime. You know, in, in the past thirty years, and I very much remember sort of those early days when it was going to be about an almost utopian vision, you know, of lots of information at our fingertips, lots of ways of seeing the world, lots of different perspectives. But there's a there's an enormously dark side to it all, hasn't there? Which maybe we didn't kind of consider uh, very much at the beginning. Well, it is important, as you say, to begin by emphasising the value of the internet and mm. the, the enormous opportunities and good that it does bring. And in all of our everyday lives now, we use the internet uh, a lot of the time in many different ways. And so it's really not that different when you look at malevolent actors who are looking to achieve particular objectives. It's no great surprise that they also are online a lot of the time and they're looking to use the internet in ways that advance their goals. And so the internet is a, a tool that has been exploited and is used and there is a significant dark side to the internet. Uh, so this type of work really is important in trying to tackle that dark side, but it shouldn't detract from the enormous benefits of the internet. If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place. No, I think it's a very sort of important thing to state from the from the outset. Right, going back to the, the fundamentals and thinking about you know, online threats, cyber terrorism in your case. Who's behind all of this? Who do you look at? What what kind of organized groups or individuals do you focus on? Well, when we started working on the the possibility of terrorists launching cyber attacks, and that was really what we meant by cyber terrorism, we we approached it in a narrow definitional sense where terrorist groups or terrorist actors launch cyber attacks and cause real world harm, as in death or injury to people or damage to property. That was really what we were interested in initially. And it was, I guess, not so much motivated by things that had actually happened in the real world. It was more motivated by the level of media interest and the level of interest in this possibility from pop culture. So you have Hollywood movies like Skyfall or like Die Hard, where you have instances of cyber terrorism taking place. And so there's a natural concerned then that that could be replicated in in the real world and so what we really wanted to do was to try and investigate how likely is that and what should we be doing to guard ourselves against it so we investigated it by conducting a, a survey of expert researchers from around the world so we, we put the survey together and we sent it to 
a large number of academics and we received over 100 responses from lots of different countries and we collated the responses and the majority did feel that it was a significant threat but at the same time opinion was really split as to whether it was something that had actually happened and that was an interesting uh, finding to us it was actually came out exactly 50-50 between those that said cyberterrorism had happened in the past and those that said it hadn't happened so we drill down a bit and look more closely at types of events people gave as examples of cyber terrorism having happened and a lot of them were some way removed from maybe our own definition of cyber terrorism so there were stories for example of a hacker in Australia who managed to cause us a sewage leak in a sewage works in Australia and there was an example of the internet being used to inflame riots in one particular location so these kinds of things were given by our participants as examples of cyber terrorism but while serious they were not exactly in the same bracket in our eyes as the kind of skyfall type cyber attack where you have or even uh, another popular example is someone managing to gain control of an air traffic control unit and causing a plane to fall out of the sky that was the kind of thing we were interested in investigating and i think looking at the participants responses and trying to examine why people thought that hadn't happened the answer came down to a fairly simple cost benefit analysis for a terrorist group looking to attract maximum publicity because publicity is ultimately what terrorist groups need to further their cause the feeling was that a conventional improvised explosive device is far far cheaper and easier to create and manufacture than the level of know-how and technical expertise and time that would go into something like gaining control of an air traffic control unit. And of course, there's also the problem in the cyber realm. Sometimes there can be cyber attacks, but companies might, for example, want to portray that as having been an accident rather than say it was due to a flaw in their own cyber defense that was exploited. And so there was even a danger that if a terrorist group did manage to perpetrate a high uh, impact incident that it would be portrayed by the authorities by the uh, media as simply an accident and they wouldn't get the publicity they wanted anyway so weighing up the kind of pros and cons our participants felt that terrorists will continue to choose the more traditional forms of attack I've noticed a couple of examples of this in the news recently where you've heard of some quite major technical glitch that's affected, you know, a, a piece of infrastructure or an oil pipeline or whatever. And it's often just been not sort of brushed under the carpet, but the explanations for it have just been a oh, technical glitch. Is, is there the possibility that it, that it could be something more sinister that's being not covered up as such, but the full extent of what's happened might, might not be being told to us? I guess that's possible, but it's also entirely possible that the, the <laughs> reports are true, of course. It's yeah. very difficult to know. And um, there is this level of secrecy around cyber vulnerabilities, which is mm. quite understandable. You wouldn't want vulnerabilities in critical infrastructure to be openly broadcast because of the, the fear that those vulnerabilities might be exploited. What, what are the aims and objectives, broadly, of people, you know, in the, as you put it, in the cyber realm who, who are doing these these kinds of things? Because... I, th- I think we've we've got a sense in our head of what someone is trying to achieve if they you know try and hijack an aeroplane or something. But if this particular kinds of cybercrime are being are being perpetrated, yeah, what 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 are they trying to achieve, or is it just it could, could it be everything and anything? Well, of course, the the objectives differ depending on the actor. For cyber criminals, there's obviously a, a financial motive, and there are lots of examples of cyber criminals using the internet to to victimize individuals and make financial gain. But for terrorist actors, the the objective is more ideological or political. Um, So as we were coming to the end of this this work, looking at the the threat of cyber terrorism in this narrow sense, we were becoming aware of increasing concern at the policy level about online propaganda and radicalization. And this is now about 2013, 2014. 2014 has been described by one commentator as the golden age for Islamic State on Twitter. 
because at that time they were uh, managing to maintain a presence on Twitter without really much threat of takedown. And the, the estimates of how many active IS accounts there were on Twitter at that time, the estimates were as high as 90,000. And some of them were tweeting dozens of times a day. So they were able at that point to really maintain quite a presence on the platform. And alongside that, there was a, an attack in Kenya on the, the Westgate shopping mall. And that was perpetrated by the group Al-Shabaab. But Al-Shabaab actually were live tweeting the attack. So they were posting pictures from inside the, the shopping mall. They were giving updates on their action. The tweets were taken down, but it, there was a bit of a delay. So lots of the tweets were still picked up by the media and by researchers. And it gave the attack quite a high level of prominence. And it was also used by Al-Shabaab to uh, give warnings of what they were going to do next. So there's this element of psychological warfare. So I think around that time, we decided that we needed to move on and begin to think more about this this issue of online propaganda and online radicalization, because it was becoming clear to us that that was really uh, for terrorist groups who want to recruit in order to advance their their ideology or their political cause. It was clear to us that that was really a, a growing issue. If you'd like to find out more about our research at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. So this is around 2014. Around 2014, yeah. Yeah, tell us where it went from there. So we, we began by um, conducting a study of e-magazines produced by the group Islamic State. So IS produce... At that time, they were producing this e-magazine, which was available in multiple languages. They published one in English as a PDF, and they were using Twitter and other social media platforms to try and disseminate the magazine once they produced it. So we wanted to begin to understand more about their message, to understand what they were propagating in order to try and feed into policy responses that were trying to counter that message. So we collected all of the available issues of the the magazine. And I would like to point out that um, this was all subject to quite a rigorous ethical (laughs) oversight process. I was going to bring that up, you know, just sort of thinking, (laughs) how easy is it just to sit there and just browse browse literature produced by these people? But um, my advice to anyone really that's interested is do not try and access these publications because it is closely monitored. And so we we had discussions with the authorities about um, the proper process and proper arrangements for accessing the materials and storing them and how to view them. And we made sure that was all in place before we actually obtained any copies ourselves. I mean, that, that in itself is fascinating, though. I mean, without obviously revealing, there's probably things you can't tell us or you, you can't sort of say in public. But what exactly is that process like and who are you dealing with? Is it just the is it the police or is it sort of other other individuals? Our primary point of contact is the police, and um, they are always grateful if we inform them of any planned data collection activities, just as a, a professional courtesy, if you like. Um, and we also try and minimize any access to those online materials. So if we were doing a study like the one I've mentioned again, we would access the materials, download them, and store them securely to ensure that we don't have to go online and look at them repeatedly. Um, so we tried to make sure we only view them online just that once to access them the, on the first occasion. Um, and then once we've got copies of them, we then have quite stringent um, arrangements in place for when we can look at them, where we can look at them, who can look at them. So all of that was was put in place before we started to analyze the, the text of the magazines. And on a before we before we go on, just on a personal level, as opposed to a professional one, what 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 is it like, you know, flicking through this this stuff and reading what I assume can be quite intense content at times? Yeah, it can be difficult. I think I should say that the the magazine, because Islamic State became very notorious for the extreme violence and the graphic nature of some of their propaganda videos. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We didn't look at any videos. I've always personally preferred not to view any of their videos because mm. of the 
graphic nature of the violence they contain. This is the this is the beheadings, the burning people alive kind of stuff. Yeah, that kind of stuff. The the magazines contain photos of some of those things. But at the same time, it's worth emphasizing that that kind of very graphic image was actually quite a small part of the overall content. Interesting. The, the project team that worked on this study, we were all, I guess, quite surprised by um, the nature of the material taken as a whole. So lots of the articles, there were some really quite in-depth theological articles. Yes. Um, that must have been written by people with quite a significant amount of theological learning. And the the image content didn't focus on scenes of violence. Actually, we, we analysed the images. We um, coded each one individually and then looked at what type of image content was most prevalent. And the most prevalent content in the magazine that IS produced was actually just groups of jihadist men either sitting together in conversation or posing with weapons. So we concluded from that that they, their propaganda or their propaganda magazine specifically had a strong focus on emphasizing a sense of community. There were lots and lots of groups of jihadists sitting together, discussing or reading scripture or in some instances just laughing, sharing a joke. And this type of image was the most prevalent. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated by that because it's sort of with my with my historians hat on as it were, uh, which I say quite a lot. But but it's, it's it's the only real one of the few hats I can wear. I you often do see that some of the people who end up doing terrible evils often are, like you say, philosophical, intelligent, articulate, and it sort of it complicates the whole picture, doesn't it? Because we we sometimes want to think, I guess, of sort of goodies and baddies, and we and we don't want our our baddies to to be like this in some ways, but they often are. And that makes them more serious and it makes them more dangerous and it makes it more worrying and troubling as a sort of ideology that, that, that there is some intellectual underpinning to it, I guess. And I think the kind of the goodies and baddies philosophy or perspective, that really is the kind of image that's projected from the magazines themselves. They present a very simple binary view of the world. You have right. good which was the Islamic State and its its um, theology and its followers mm. and those who are committed to the caliphate. And then you have bad, you have evil, and that's the enemy. And in particular, it's what they describe as crusaders, but the West, essentially, those who deny the message that Islamic State propagate. And they they present the world in very simple binary terms like that. And they say to the reader, you've got to choose. Which side are you? Because if you're not with us, then you're against us. You're the enemy. That's so interesting. So yeah, you, you and your team are looking through all this material, and you know, with what sort of end purposes or with what kind of goals in mind? Well, I think we wanted to try and inform responses, and there was a lot of emphasis, particularly at that time, on trying to create counter narratives. And our feeling was that if you want to try and put forward counter narratives, you have to know exactly what it is you're trying to respond to. And having found that there was this emphasis on the communal, and that, remember at this point in time, lots of young people were, or lots of people of all ages were moving to Syria and Iraq to try and join the caliphate. And people were asking, why would they do that? Why would people uproot themselves and turn their back on their, their life in the West to go and live in Syria and Iraq? And so we really wanted to try and have some understanding of what might compel people to feel that they should do that. Our conclusion was that there was this this sense of community that was being promised, but kind of beyond that, the magazines were constructing this notion of what we called the good Muslim, where the good Muslim is someone who experiences fulfillment. It's someone who responds actively to the call to jihad, and it's someone who is respected by their peers. And this was the, the kind of construct that the magazines were putting in front of people. If you actively respond to our call to jihad, if you uproot and you come to the caliphate and you join our community, you will experience fulfillment and you will be respected. And I think that message, obviously looking at the numbers of people that left, that message obviously resonated with lots of people who maybe had feelings of social exclusion or marginalization or grievances against the West, grievances against 
society. There was something about the message in that in that magazine that really struck a chord with people, and so that then helps one to understand why it's so important that there's an active effort, not just to make the magazine harder to come by and try and suppress it, but to present an alternative and to say to people, if you are socially excluded or if you do have a grievance, there are other things that you can do to try and be part of a, a community locally, to to join in with a local Muslim community or to air your grievances in a more constructive way and participate in the political process. Um, it's not this simple binary that the magazine's giving you where you either go and join the Islamic State or you're the enemy and you'll never experience respect or fulfillment. Well, yes, this is what I was going to ask then. Is how, do you, how do you address this? Well, in many different ways. And I think in the early days of counter-narrative campaigns, there were lots of mistakes made. And that's because I think there was so much focus on the content of the, the message, so much focus on the content of the counter-narrative that in some instances there was a lack of focus on the identity of the messenger and you had some early counter-narrative videos that maybe were getting the the message wrong firstly but more fundamentally had government branding for example and that immediately was alienating those that were going to sit down and watch these videos because it was to them, it was simply uh, rhetoric from the very enemy group that they despised. So counter, counter messages are important. Of course, there needs to be some substance there. So if you say to people, you can participate in the political process instead, there needs to be meaningful opportunities for political participation. Uh, if you say to people that you can find fulfillment as a Muslim in your local mosque, then there needs to be mosques where those people can go and, and join and be a part and then beyond that, there's the kind of measures that social media platforms began to take to try and make the propaganda less easily discoverable so that the, the propaganda isn't so easy to, to find online. And there's uh, harder forms of response that can be taken against those who seek to radicalize. So the radicalizers themselves, there are the criminal offenses that can be used to prosecute. There are other forms of legal response that might be used as well. So there's there's a whole panoply of different forms of response. Um, and that really goes back to where we started the conversation, talking about the importance of a multidisciplinary team, because I might be able to talk about how to draft a criminal offence, but I would not be the right person to try and draft a strategic communications campaign. If you're a teacher and you'd like our help with talking about this topic in the classroom, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash teachers for more information. I heard you mention there about, you know, making this material less easily discoverable. I mean, obviously we know what that means, but regulation, is that what we're talking about here? Is that sort of regulating the online world to, to some extent so that you can try and make it so that people just can't find certain things? I personally think there's a there's a need for a regulatory regime, um, but at the same time, it's really important to emphasise the complexity of the regulatory task. And I think lots of the political and media discourse, quite understandably, tends to focus on the social media giants, say the Facebooks, the Twitters, the YouTubes. But actually, those are the platforms that now are probably amongst the most hostile for terrorist groups especially for a group like Islamic State. It's very hard for Islamic State to maintain a stable presence on Twitter. So they've actually now resorted to the use of kind of short-term throwaway accounts, which are essentially anonymized. And that's very different to going back five or six years where the accounts were would have photos of the Islamic State logo and would have um, explicit names making the link to Islamic State. Now it tends to be just a randomized collection of letters as the, the username and the, a bland photo as, as the, the image. And even then, the accounts are often taken down very, very quickly. So they've resorted to this kind of use of throwaway accounts. They create the account specifically just to go and put the link out there to the magazine in the expectation that the account will be shut down very quickly. 
So what's really quite important now is looking at the whole online ecosystem. So the social media giants have, have become more hostile, but there are many, many other online platforms that are being exploited by terrorist groups. And this is really where some of the regulatory interventions fall down a bit. So you have, for example, lots of small and micro platforms that are exploited by terrorist groups. There's one in particular that's quite well known in my field. It's run by an individual working out of his home, just one person. And Islamic State began using it. It's a file sharing site. And Islamic State began to use it effectively as a repository. They put lots and lots of copies of their publications on this site. And then they would try and outlink to that site from Twitter. So put the publication on the site, generate a link, and then go and publicly disseminate the link. So the the site itself started to receive lots and lots of takedown requests from law enforcement all around the world. But this was a lone individual trying to deal with this enormous volume of takedown requests, often written in languages he couldn't speak, often referring to laws in countries, both laws that he didn't know um, from countries that he didn't reside in. So it was an, an enormous task for him in that situation. What, what could he do in that situation? And there's lots of talk at the moment um, about having a, a one-hour window for platforms to take down content. And that might be, although I think it's contestable, but that might be an appropriate course of action for the social media giants. But when you're talking about a lone individual trying to deal with this level of complexity, expecting him to be able to take down every item of terrorist propaganda within an hour and threatening penalties if he doesn't manage it, it's simply not a suitable intervention. And that's that's been recognized. And um, there's a an initiative that we collaborate with called Tech Against Terrorism. And Tech Against Terrorism exists really to help platforms like that. Um, they They have a variety of resources, knowledge sharing materials, capacity building programs, to try and help platforms like the one I've mentioned um, begin to grapple with this problem of terrorist propaganda. It's just so it's so difficult, isn't it? Because new platforms or new encrypted messaging services can just spring up. I think I remember reading recently that this major drug trafficking network had been using, you know, just a, a new trusted in inverted commas encrypted messaging service and then they just moved on to something else. And keeping tabs on these things is 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 nearly impossible, isn't it? Well, encryption is a, a whole new set of challenges again. Um, mm. So as there's been more effective action taken to deal with the kinds of propaganda I've been talking about, those, those methods won't work in quite the same way when you're talking about encrypted messages between individuals. And again, it's worth reiterating the point we made a while ago, which is that these services like in, encryption there's, this, there's a lot of good that they offer. So simply saying we shouldn't have encrypted services whatsoever, you'd be losing a lot of benefit there as well. Things like whistleblowers or people maybe in uh, very oppressive regimes looking to communicate with those outside the regime. Encryption does have a, a number of benefits, but it is liable to be exploited at the same time. And there have been examples of terrorist attacks where the, the terrorist actors were communicating with each other using encrypted messaging services. So it is it is really a great concern, and it's one that people are only really just now beginning to, to try and tackle and discuss how best to, to deal with it. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, there's a civil liberties sort of case to discuss here, isn't there? To, to what extent should individuals be allowed to send private messages to one another because the vast majority of them are going to be completely normal and people should have that right to privacy, shouldn't they? So I, I, I guess that's the crux of, of the matter with this particular issue. Yeah, and it's this dividing line between private and public communication as well. So there are some platforms that say we're quite happy to take down terrorist content where it's communicated publicly, it's made publicly available, but they would express reservations about regulating private conversations and content that's shared in private channels. Of course, then you get the question, when does private cease being private and become public? Because some of them may have 
so-called private channels that have thousands of members and you wonder then just how private the private channel really I find it gives me a bit of a headache thinking about it because there's no there's no easy answers to it. But I would I would note that when I speak to people or read, uh, for example, commentators who tend to be on the quite sort of libertarian wing of things and don't believe broadly in state regulation, most seem to think and believe that there is there is a case for some sort of much stronger regulation of the internet, and I can I can see why. And when regulating, I think it's really important as well to remember that respect for human rights is a really essential component of an effective counterterrorism strategy. And the UK has learned that through decades of experience in responding to terrorism. And it's very important when responding to terrorist incidents, this is a lesson that was learned in the years following 9-11, not to react in a, a knee-jerk way and create draconian laws, because in the long run, that kind of response actually can create significant feelings of alienation in minority communities that feel that they're really being targeted by these draconian laws. And it's those very feelings of alienation that then end up being exploited by terrorist radicalizers. So as we seek to deal with this issue and we talk about how best to regulate, ensuring respect for human rights is fundamentally important and it needs to be right at the front of the the conversation. I think everything we've spoken about so far has been making me think in the background about, I suppose, one of the more famous cases, which I know isn't specifically sort of cyber terrorism, but probably does relate to the, the, the sort of young people and social media that we've been discussing, is the whole Shamima Begum case. I suppose the question I would ask there is... As academics, you know, you're you're basically talking about addressing this issue in, in quite a nuanced, you know, interdisciplinary way. Sort of thinking about things in the round, having very sort of very very thoughtful discussions about it. Do you sometimes run up against a sort of a blunter side to public opinion, for example? Because I think you know, there's probably a difference, isn't there, with say the Shamima Begum case between what broadly the public thought should happen to her and happen in her case, and maybe what someone looking at all of this from the academic perspective might think about, you know, addressing the issue, engaging communities, et cetera. Is, is there a tension there sometimes, I suppose, is what I'm asking between public and maybe sort of the, the press and the way that you approach the topic? I think as a criminal justice scholar, it's a, it's a tension that is quite familiar across criminal justice in mm. general. Mm. The attraction of populist politics and populist policies, there is a quite understandable temptation, I guess, for policymakers to respond in a way that they know is going to be popular with people who are hurting in the aftermath of high-profile incidents. And it is very difficult in that kind of context to ensure the kind of rational discussion and debate that, that is needed to ensure that you you have laws that do maintain that level of respect for human rights. You, you frequently you hear the comments, well, terrorists, they've effectively forfeited their, their human rights by the harm that they've inflicted on others. And I think it's important when responding to that kind of line of argument to remember that this is not just about the human rights of terrorists. You're trying to create counterterrorism policies that would be effective. You're trying to prevent people from being radicalized. You're trying to prevent future attacks. So you're actually concerned with the rights of potential future victims, as well as the rights of those that have already committed atrocities. It's it's not that liberals are just being soft and woolly and trying to look after the, the terrorists. It's, they have a concern about human rights of everyone. And of course, the UK and other Western countries, when it comes to human rights protection, have an important role to play globally in helping improve human rights protection in in other countries and so in that sense we have an important setting a good example role to play we need to ensure that we are seen as being human rights respectful because if we flout human rights standards and then we we try and speak to other countries about their human rights records they're not going to be inclined to listen if they think that we're a country that doesn't respect human rights itself now, at Swansea, you're the director of, I've seen this written down, but I don't I assume you pronounce it Citrek. Citrek. Citrek, there we go, which is a research centre. Do you want to tell us more about that and sort of when that came came into being? Yeah, so over the years, as we 
we gained more of a reputation for our, our work on online terrorism. We accumulated um, new colleagues and new PhD students, and our, our focus began to shift just from the kind of work I've described. We began looking at other forms of terrorism. So one of my colleagues, Dr. Lela Nuri, looks specifically at the far right and the threat posed by the far right. And she's been looking at that for several years, but obviously in the last couple of years, it's become an, an really quite prominent political issue. And then outside of terrorism, we also have colleagues that look at a range of other cyber threats. So that includes online grooming and child sexual exploitation, cybercrime, uh, cyber warfare and cyber espionage. So over the years, we've, I guess, deepened our focus on online terrorism, but also broadened our focus to look at other types of cyber threat. And that's in large part, been uh, facilitated by a very generous grant that we received from the Welsh European Funding Office that allowed us to set up the Legal Innovation Lab Wales. So the Legal Innovation Lab Wales um, has three strands to its work. The first strand is access to justice. The second strand is legal tech. And the third strand is cyber threats. And so I like to think of that as access to justice and legal tech are the light and on the cyber threats we're trying to deal with the dark so by better protecting the internet and making it more secure it helps facilitate the kinds of work that our colleagues in legal tech and access to justice are doing um, but thanks to the grant we were able to appoint several new researchers within the the cyber threats strand of work and we're also shortly going to be opening some new facilities on the Singleton campus, which include a, a PC lab, some secure research space where we can look at very sensitive data, uh, a meeting room and some offices to accept visitors from other countries on secondment and on uh, visiting placements. Great. What does the future hold, Stuart? You know, you're, obviously you research the here and now. How can you see all of this developing? And I assume that the answer is not going to be... Wholly positive and could even be a little bit uh, worrying for listeners. But yeah, I guess without kind of spooking us too much, what's what's going to happen? My work, as I've explained, has focused largely on the the threat from jihadist groups. But I think in the last couple of years, there's been a, a lot more concern about the threat posed by the extreme right and the far right. And I've outlined some of the challenges in terms of responding to online jihadist content. The challenges when responding to the content of the far right, they're even more acute and it's even more difficult. There's a few reasons for that. One is that lots of jihadist content is branded. So for example, Islamic State videos would have the Islamic State logo on, which then makes it easier for machines to detect that content and block it at the point of upload. You don't get that same feature with the content of the far right. It, it's rarely branded. It rarely has logos. So immediately, it's more difficult to identify, but it's also more difficult to identify because of this kind of convergence of the far right and the mainstream. And so some commentators have described it as a broadening of the Overton window, a broadening of what kind of political discourse is acceptable within mainstream society. As this broadening has taken place, increasingly you find uh, far right content drawing quite heavily on mainstream content. We've just recently completed a study looking at the types of online materials shared by two far-right networks in mainland Europe. And one of the most common types of content that they were sharing and resharing was news stories from mainstream news media sites. So they have their own publications, they have their own far-right publications, but they were just as heavily using mainstream news sites and they were picking up on stories to do with things like crime or terrorism and particularly stories where the, the perpetrators of the crime or the act in question were of Arab descent and they were using those stories to try and advance their own, their own arguments and their own causes and saying things like, well, look at the threat posed by migrants, look at this story, look at... And it's very difficult in that kind of instance to draw this line we've been talking about 
when should content be removed and when should it be allowed to remain up? Because the underlying content there is a it's a news story published on a mainstream news site, um, and people are commenting on it and resharing it. But how do you police that? Um, it's very difficult. I guess the mainstream news in in most cases. Certainly, in this country, surely it's just it's just trying to report what happens. It's then how people use the facts of what has happened and construct a narrative around it. Is that is, is that what you're saying is the issue? Yeah, and the, the the comments can often be make use of irony or rhetoric or humour. So it's not necessarily that the the comments are explicitly giving a, a, a far right message. It can be it can be loaded, if you like, and then if we're relying on machines to try and identify the vast majority of content because we're talking about millions and millions of posts every hour we have to rely on machines but machines are not capable of detecting things like rhetoric or irony or sarcasm easily so it means that we are back relying on the human factor in those kinds of cases and given the volume of content it's very very difficult even for the biggest platforms with thousands of moderators to try and keep on top of all of that content and when it raises complex free speech issues there's a concern that if you say to them you only have an hour to take it down the platforms may well start to err on the side of caution rather than risk being fined let's just take the content down if we're not sure but then there's really quite a significant impact on freedom of speech. Yeah, I, I work a little bit on this area and, and, and follow it quite a lot. And I, I've got sort of two concerns there, which is that some of those Twitter, for example, algorithms will hide or kind of disguise things that actually are quite mild and are just other people's opinions. And then they start to look much more like a, an editor than a platform. But secondly, as well, I, I'm also concerned that by calling what are probably robust but legitimate kind of views that might be you know conservative ones if we start labeling them more and more as far right it's probably going to have the opposite effects and it's going to make those people who are being labeled think that they are being i don't know marginalized from the from the discourse and then probably will stop engaging with mainstream discourse even more because they say well we're just being called far right anyway so there's there's lots of there's lots of competing factors and complications here and it has been shown in some empirical studies that suspension plays a part in community building. Uh, so there are studies that have been conducted by other researchers where they've they've followed individuals that have been suspended and then resurfaced on the platform. And the whole narrative around the suspension experience and managing to get back on the platform, it builds a sense of community amongst those that do make it back on. There is that dimension. And there's also the the signposting dimension. Users may go on Twitter initially but some of these posts that are being put on platforms like Twitter, the users that are posting will have bios that openly signpost people to other platforms where, which are less regulated. So the, the user might just be sharing a, a mainstream news story and they might have put a, a comment there. But the person that stumbles across that and looks at it and thinks, oh, this person looks interesting and they scroll up and they see their bio, and then they see that this person actually also has accounts on three or four other platforms which are less regulated, and they might choose to then follow them on those other platforms, and the, the nature of the content could be quite different on those other platforms, could be far more explicit. So there is that kind of signposting element, which, which is quite challenging, and it, it underscores the point about needing to regulate in a way that treats this as one ecosystem rather than looking at individual platforms in isolation. There's people listening to this who no doubt will be very interested in your research. There might be young people who are listening who want to do more in this area or maybe even sort of uh, do more studies in your, your field. What advice would you give them? First of all, at undergraduate level, I think it's really important to develop a, a, a strong disciplinary base, whether that be legal skills or computer science skills or analytical skills from another social science subject. I think that's a really valuable foundation. And then as you get to master's level, there are master's courses like the one we have in Swansea, which focuses on cybercrime and terrorism, where you can begin to develop your niche and you can begin to adopt this more interdisciplinary approach that we've talked about. And you can begin to expose yourself to, to other disciplines and other approaches. 
And as part of the the MA in cybercrime and terrorism, we have a weekly guest lecture from a a stakeholder partner, whether that be law enforcement or a tech company or a government official. And something they've repeatedly emphasized, because at the end of each lecture, we ask them for one piece of careers advice for the, the students. And something that they've repeatedly emphasized is this kind of combination of skills. So they are really interested to have people that know a lot about terrorism, but also are good linguists and can speak another language, or people that know a lot about terrorism, but also have good programming skills. So this kind of multidisciplinary background is really quite valuable. So if that's the kind of direction that someone would like to take, looking at cybercrime or cyberterrorism, I think it's a good first step to build a base in a, in a home discipline. And I think the other piece of advice I'd give is that the research community in my field is very active on Twitter. And so you can learn a lot just from uh, following people like myself or my colleagues or some of the other researchers working in this space, keep up to date on the, the latest publications. And it's a really good idea just to try and read those blogs. There's a good blog maintained by uh, Voxpol. There's a good blog maintained by GNET, the Global Network on Extremism and Technology, of which we remember. And so reading those blogs, you'll really begin to understand the field and you'll see practitioner perspectives. And these things really will make you stand out when it gets to the, the job market at the end of your master's degree. Wonderful. Stuart, thank you for, well, thank you for the advice, but also for a, a very interesting and timely discussion. Thank you very much. Well, thank you again for having me. To find out more about Stuart's research, please search for the Cyber Threats Research Centre and follow them on Twitter, which is at Cytrek, spelled C-Y-T-R-E-C, and there's an underscore at the end of that as well, so that's Cytrek. To find out more about this podcast and Swansea University's research, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. That's all from us today. Thanks for listening, and thank you again to our guest, Professor Stuart MacDonald. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow I'm Sam Blacksland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.